Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is the third edition of Tough Talks from the Top, where we hear from those who've been at the helm of large corporations, navigated the complex organizations, and stayed true to themselves. I think, I hope, my special guest will provoke reflection around who you are, why you do what you do, and perhaps changes you're needing or wanting to happen in your life. My guest today has created a robust portfolio of meaningful work in academia, business, civic, and social sectors. He's doing it all. Just a few highlights. In business, he's executive partner with private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners, having previously served as chairman and CEO of Baxter International Incorporated, a $12 billion global healthcare company. He rose literally to the top over a 23 career, starting as a finance whiz. As an executive, he met every earnings target and quadrupled Baxter's stock price. In academia, while technically clinical professor of leadership at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, I understand he functions as the school's mayor. He was named the 2008 Kellogg School Professor of the Year and perennially a favorite of students. He's also very engaged in his community, including North Shore University Health System, Archdiocese of Chicago Finance Committee and School Board, and the One Acre Fund, supporting farmers in East Africa to reduce hunger and poverty. Oh, and I'll add author of three best-selling leadership books. All three are rooted in values. So no surprise that my guest moves through space with deep understanding of his own values and the discipline in words and actions to live them. In essence, he's deeply connected within his own self. And for listeners, you know that being in good relationship within is fundamental to using your voice in positive, productive ways. Without further ado, my larger-than-life friend, Harry Kramer. Harry, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Great to be with you, Molly. Great to be with you. It is a real treat for me and for listeners. It sort of seems like you do it all, Harry. So just to humanize yourself, for us mere mortals, not sharing a few things you're not so good at, right? How about anything your dear wife, Julie, or those five kids might wish you do differently? Well, there, there's many, many things. And if you talk to one of my five children, they, they tell you, or Julie, my, by the way, would tell you that she has six children, uh, including a big age difference between me and, and, the, and the other and the other five. Uh, what don't I do well? The list is very, very long, Molly. The way uh, I sometimes describe it is uh, I, have, uh, I have no mechanical skills whatsoever. And somebody said, what's an example of that? And if somebody said, what kind of heat do you have in your house? I say, I have hot heat. Okay. I, I have, I have no idea. And if Julie really wants to tease me at a party, she'll introduce me and she'll say, you know, this is my husband, Harry, uh, who is the only person I've ever met when he flushes a toilet, he thinks it's a miracle. Okay. I have no mechanical skills whatsoever. Okay. So uh, I'm pretty good at a couple of things, you know, dealing with people and numbers, but mechanical aspects. I But I, I found over time, Molly, that the key is um, to always know what you know and know what you don't know and know somebody who knows what you don't know, which has been helpful to me for sure. <laughs> I have to write that down. That is a quote of the century. That's a really great one, Harry. 
Thank you. Your humility precedes you. And maybe that's why your parents named you Harry. Um, okay. <laughs> I am going to be, you know, when you, when I go through your CV and obviously it's, it's just remarkable. It can look for folks on the outside, like a little red carpet rolled out, boom, your CEO of Baxter. So, you know, I, um, you know, imagine it's, we, this value thing has come up. It's been a journey. So just take us through a little bit of your life growing up defining moments, just like, you know, help people get a sense of what's really shaped you, who shaped you along the way. Sure. Well, no, it's, it really is uh, great to be with you. So, um, so I, I guess I'd have to say, I, I sort of, uh, grew up in sort of the, the average, uh, family. I was born in New York. Uh, my dad was a salesman. We moved around all over the place um, every every couple of years, which I think in hindsight was great because I, I knew it would only be someplace for a year or two. So I had to figure out how to get friends pretty quickly. Um, and then uh, we, I went to high school in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, which is where my grandmother lived. And then we moved out to the West Coast and then Minnesota, uh, went to a small college in Wisconsin. I'm the oldest of five. And uh, so I, I would say... A couple of things really had a big impact on me. One thing, when you talk about the values, Molly, uh, you and I can talk about anything. One of the things early on, um, I uh, grew up in a, in a fairly fairly religious family. And uh, I would, uh, every Sunday when we would go to church, um, they the, the, one of the priests would say, hey, we need to pray for more vocations. I mean, we just don't have enough priests. We don't have enough priests. And being sort of a kind of a serious guy, I remember when I was about 13, my uncle was a priest. And uh, he would come to visit us most Friday nights to have dinner, play cards. So I think I was about 13, Molly. And this, this had an impact on me. We had dinner. And then I said, hey, Uncle Francis, Father Francis, I said, uh, I need to talk to you. And he said, why? I said, well, I, I've thought about this. And I've decided, you know, I, I need to become a priest. And he said, oh, my goodness, this is great. You've got a calling, whatever. I said, uh, no, I don't have a calling. I, I absolutely know I do not have a calling. Uh, but, and I'd like to get married someday. But I said, I, I think I've decided to do this. And he says, well, why is that? And he said, well, we need more priests. We had a shortage. And if any of my friends become a priest, we're going to have a serious problem. Okay. So somebody's got to do this. And it was really remarkable. Molly said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, look, if you end up with a calling, that's fantastic. But guess what? Here's what I'm going to ask you. As a priest, my friends that are ministers, rabbis, whatever, he said, we can, we can impact the people that come to church and the people that, you know, come to the temple or synagogue. But he said, I'm always wondering how do you how do you reach people that that aren't coming to religious institutions? What kind of your values and the example that you set? And I thought, you know, uh, yeah, that, that sort of makes sense. So it's it's interesting to me, Molly. Any job that I was ever in at Baxter, uh, any job on boards, even teaching now, I always think of my uncle who who died a couple of years after that. And I thought, you know, I I will try to set an example of of what I think really being a uh, you know, in my mind, uh, what, what, what a good person looks like. And uh, so I get, I get a little emotional about it. But that was, you know, if you said to me, what was it like, you know, being the CEO of Baxter and having 55,000 team members, it, there was no power thing. It was, wow, I, and I can give you examples. I have, I have the ability to be a positive example for 55,000 people. Uh, it's not ego. It's not narcissism. It isn't, no, it is, can you be a pretty down-earth person, not, never forget who you were or where you are, and, and try to make an impact on people? Um, so it's, uh, that, that, had a, that had an enormous impact on me, Molly. I think about that. I think about, I get a little emotional about it, but I think about that all the time. 
Well, it's these things for people listening. You never know that one thing you might say to a young person that changes the trajectory of their life. And, you know, I, I am wondering, you know, sometimes like, you know, I can just all the cringeworthy moments in my career when I'm just out over my skis, but I'm wondering, you know, what it's one thing to have that epiphany. Were you just able to like be it and live it? Did you, did you feel like you went off track ever? Were you ever kind of not really true to yourself? Yeah, well, uh, I went off track a lot uh, for sure. And I, it's funny. I, uh, I, I listened to that. I thought that was good, but you know, we're all human. I'm a teenager. We're crazy or whatever. Um, the next incident, uh, Molly, that had a big impact on me was uh, when I was in college and um, I was a senior and um, I met a young woman, Molly, who was a freshman. In fact, it was really worse than that. It was her first day of school that I met her and I had the best job on the campus. I ran the checkout desk at the library back in the days when you had to go to the library. So I met her and uh, I started to date her. And I tell my five children they can't do this now, but it was okay 40 years ago. I rationalized is that I was only there for a short time because I graduated early. I was a senior and I came down to Chicago. And what I did was I used to hitchhike, you know, your little thumb up. I used to hitchhike 183 miles from Chicago up to Appleton, Wisconsin. And I did that for about three months until her father called me. And he said, um, hey, I know what's going on. I, you know, my daughter, she's uh, you know 18 years old and you're a graduate of school. Um, I, I need to talk to you. I said, super. Uh, why don't you come on down to Chicago? He said, no, no, no. You come to Minnesota and I'll tell you when to come down. I'll tell you when. And I thought, okay, fine. So I went up to Minnesota and I, it was first week of December, Molly. Um, snow's coming down like crazy. Can imagine what it is in Minnesota. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be friendly with this guy. Do you want to go to a football game? And he goes, no, no, no. He said, I got a, I got something else we're going to do. He said, uh, we're going to go on a retreat together. And I said, what's a retreat? Well, you'll find out. You got to spend a little time thinking about values, purpose, you know, how you're treating my daughter. I was very, very quiet. And so uh, we start to drive out to this place. And he said, now there's something I should tell you before we go. And I said, what's that? He said, it's a silent retreat. I said, what does that mean? He said, you can't shut up for three minutes. You will not be talking for the next three days. And then I asked myself, Molly, the obvious question, how much do I like this guy's daughter, right? But I was a finance guy, sunk cost. I'm already there. Okay, so, and we did this and it was run by the Jesuits, pretty serious group of guys, no, 65 men, no talking. And they would give you things to think about. They would say, uh, it's, um, uh, you're flying home, plane crashes. What would you like to have said to your loved ones? Now, if you do that here for for ten minutes, but if you got three days and you can talk to nobody, and there's no electronic devices, there's no phones, there's no nothing, you think about this stuff in a pretty deep way. And at the end of it, Molly, they said this shouldn't be a one-time occurrence. You should spend fifteen minutes a day doing a personal self-examination. And I thought, all right, well, okay, I'll try that for a week. Well, I've done that, Molly, every day now for the last. 41 years. And when I tell the students, and this is a little hard for some people to believe, traveling, I'm sure like you do all over the place, um, for the last now 41 consecutive years, wherever I am in the world, the first weekend in December, uh, this year will be December 7th through the 10th, I fly to Minnesota and I go on this three-day silent retreat. Um, and I did marry his daughter and I still go on this with my 91-year-old father-in-law. Um, and I have to tell you, Molly, the whole thought process of, you know, what, what do you what do you start to figure out? Silence is a pretty good thing. Spending a little time. And once a year, I have three days thinking about, OK, if I have another couple of years based on what I've learned, 
How do I be a better father? How do I be a better spouse? How do I be a better leader, a better teacher? And then I've got my little 15 minute thing every day uh, as a little check-in. You know, think about it, Molly, when you're working, right? You have a strategic plan and then you've got your operating plan. Well, why wouldn't you do that as an individual? So I do that once a year. And then every day I do my little 15 minute thing. And of course the students will tease me, Molly, and they'll say, well, do you do this every day? And I'll say, I do it every day. I'm not a morning guy, five kids, a lot of boards. I do it at the end of the day, usually midnight. Uh, and then they'll say, and I say, well, it's a little bit like most of you will probably brush your teeth before you go to bed. And this is my little habit. And if 15 minutes is key, because if I said I do it for half an hour, I could rationalize. I don't have hard to rationalize. You don't have 15 minutes. Um, and then they'll say, do you have to write it down? And I'll say, I don't think you have to. I journal a little bit each time. Why? Because if I don't, um, based on what's going on, am I, uh, am I really reflecting or am I daydreaming, particularly if I've had a couple of glasses of wine? It could get a little confusing while I, what, what I'm doing. So, so that, that process uh, really does keep me fairly focused. Um, and this whole area, whether you want to call it prayer or you want to call it self-reflection, it uh, has an enormous impact, Molly, because, um, well, we could talk about it, but it, it, it turns out it has an impact on everything. Right. Because if if you're self-reflective, you have an enormous advantage over other people that are not self-reflective, because, as you well know, Molly, people that are not self-reflective are constantly surprised and you're surprised they're surprised. OK, there's a lot of Molly. There's an amazing number of surprised people walking around. And we can talk about this self-reflection because I, I think it really, really has an enormous impact on how you deal with everything. I, I want to go there because I now so I want to understand 15 minutes. Do you have a structure? Do you sit at your desk? Is there a certain ritual about it? And yeah, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to, because I want to do this. I'm sold. All right, well, we, we, Molly, you and I can talk about anything. Okay. So here's the, here, here's the deal. Um, you know, I got a, a little old lazy boy chair uh, and things are quiet. Kids are down. Things are oh, quiet. Uh, my, my self-reflection process goes like this. Uh, what did I say I was going to do today? What did I actually do? What am I proud of? What am I not proud of? Okay. How did I lead people? How did I follow people? If I live today over again, what would I have done differently? And then the last one, Molly, is if I have tomorrow, and sooner or later I won't, but if I do have tomorrow and I'm a learning person, based on what I learned today, how will I operate differently tomorrow uh, on whatever dimension is important, you know, as a father, as a spouse, as a leader, as a teacher, you know, uh, as a Christian, how do you how do you look at those things? Um, and it, um, it puts everything into perspective, Molly, because... Um, if you think about most people, most people, I, and I ask this of students, I ask them executives, what are things we all do, Molly, more than we wish we did? And I'll say, well, worry, fear, anxiety, pressure, and let's not forget about stress, okay? And I'll say, well, what do you know about those things? And people say, well, Harry, um, not productive, waste of time, loses energy, um, but um, by the way, healthcare-wise, it, it could kill you. It's really bad. The problem is, if you wait until it happens, it's too late, right? If I if I wait until you're upset, Molly, and I say, oh, Molly, you know, don't worry about it. We well, are already worried. But then you say to yourself, wait a minute. If you're a self-reflective person and you can predict most things, you know, you think about it. Sooner or later, sooner or later, you know, we may lose a job. Sooner or later, we may miss a quarterly earnings. Sooner or later, a loved one is going to die. It's very sad. It's unfortunate. But I'm not so sure it should be a surprise. 
So then I had this crazy idea when I was in my early 20s going on this retreat. The, I don't know, it's the second or third time. I realized, why would you wait, Molly, until something bad happens? Why don't you ask yourself, what are you going to do when something bad happens? And I had this crazy thought, Molly, you know, life doesn't go like this, right? You just go straight up. It goes straight. Most of us go a little sideways, right? There's ups and there's downs. And in this sounds kind of crazy, Molly, but I realized, all right, when things are going really well, really, really well, personally, professionally, what's the one thing you know when things are going really, really well? And I realized it's got to go down eventually, right? Because life doesn't go straight up. So I, then I had this crazy uh, epiphany where I said, all right, what am I going to do, Molly? And I take this very seriously. What am I going to do when things are going really well? Well, I'm going to have a lot of gratitude. I'm going to thank every single person that was involved. Say a few prayers. Live in the moment, Molly. we got a lot to do tomorrow. Long list of things to do tomorrow. Got a lot of lists to do. All right. But you know what? Right now, we're going to celebrate. And the second thing I'm going to ask is, what are we going to do, Molly, when? Not if. What are we going to do when things drop down? And I'm giving you this kind of quickly, Molly, but I decided many years ago, when things go down, I'm going to do two things. Number one, I'm going to try to do the right thing. Now, that has a big asterisk attached to it. What's the right thing? I better surround myself with some very good values-driven people that will help me figure this out, because I'm certainly not going to figure this out by myself. But number one, with a lot of good people's help, I'll try to do the right thing. And number two, we'll do the best we can do in the time we can allocate to it. Now, I say that, no exaggeration, Molly, 10 times a day. It doesn't matter what's, what happens. I'll try to do the right thing. I'll do the best I can do. I'll try to do the right thing. I'll do the best I can do. The result of that, Molly, is worry, fear, anxiety, pressure, and stress can be significantly reduced. You can never eliminate them. Welcome to the real world. And we, Molly, we've all had bosses that would say, you know, a little bit of stress and pressure isn't all bad. The problem is we got a lot more than a little bit. And I think what it really does, Molly, it puts everything into perspective. So you tell me the crises, and I can we can talk about them. You know what? It either overwhelms you or you say, okay, what's the right thing to do? We'll do the best we can do. Uh, has an enormous impact on, on, on everything, Molly. Um, you know, it's, and maybe this sounds a little, uh, just to prove, make, prove the point, this may sound a little um, morbid, but I think you know me well enough to know I'm a pretty optimistic person. But one student said to me last week, I think it was Tuesday, she said, how serious do you take this? And I said, pretty seriously. I said, here's the way I look at it. It's Tuesday. Now, I have plans for Wednesday. I have a lot of plans I want to make done for Wednesday. But if you said to me today, Tuesday, what's the worst that could happen to me on Tuesday, on Wednesday? What's my worst scenario? And I said, I think my worst scenario would be, God forbid, something happens to Julie or something happens to one of the five children. Well, I hope it doesn't happen. I'll pray it doesn't happen. But if it happens, I do know what I will do. I'll try to do the right thing. I'm going to do the best I can do. All right. Because worry, fear, anxiety, pressure, stress get me nowhere close to being able to make an impact. And uh, that has been sort of a, a guiding thing for me, no matter what happens in life. That's where inner peace is arrived. Yeah. And, and Absolutely. that just so shows, you know, so surrounding yourself with these right values-based people, that idea, the, the, just as we're, you know, maturing the idea of reading people, getting to know people. So just talk about 
you know, I imagine there were times where you brought on people that weren't the value. They're still good people, but they weren't the values based people. Just talk about, you know, what you learned or how you assess and then how you moved on from those people. Yeah, no, you always ask great questions, Molly. Um, I, I really do believe that truly getting to know and relating to people is a, uh, a huge part of life. Um, and so I spend a lot of time, a lot of time getting to know people, listening to them, truly, truly listening to them so they feel heard um, and realizing that, you know, every person is different. That's what makes the world interesting. Um, one of the things I loved about Baxter was we operate in 103 countries around the world. Uh, and I got to know people because I was out of the country the last 12 years I was with Baxter, whether I was running international, running the large divisions, being the CFO, CEO. I was out of the country at least every other week. And I thrived on that ability to truly, truly understand and relate to people. You know, I would never show up in a country uh, without having read a little bit about the history, the religion, the politics, the style, the, the, the views of how people operate, right? And part of that always led me, Molly, to this whole idea of trying to never say, well, I don't understand. Because I realized that's actually sort of ignorant. If I take the time, I can understand. And then I'll decide, do I agree or disagree? And that that ability to understand, okay, why does that person believe that? Why does that person do that in that way? And then thinking through, okay, when I've got a problem, when there's something that goes wrong, uh, is this person going to have uh, the emotional maturity to really that I can say, hey, Molly, how would you handle this? What do you think I should do? If you were me, what would you do? Uh, and then as I get to know and figure out who's who's really capable of that. And of course, you always make a mistake, always, right? So you think somebody is going to be somebody who could be along those lines. And then you realize, no, they're, they're just going to be very different. And if the values aren't there, well, then I'll be respectful, um, but I'll have to find somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it comes down to very black and white. And I, I get the sense of no regrets in that you've really gone in there. You've given your best shot. And then, you know, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. No hard feelings. And I think, you know, for a lot of folks come with this whole, say it's skillfully tough conversations. And, you know, what makes it tough lots of times is how we think it reflects on us. And so mm -hmm. we kind of make it harder on ourselves. So if you, what you're, what I love about this is just, it's the path to really being whole within. And, and I, if I was talking to my beloved yoga guru and um, she's really helped me be me, but the union of your mind and your body and your soul and your spirit is something that is a lifelong journey. And if you lean into it early, like you did, you kind of get there. There's never a there there to your point of reflecting 15 minutes every day. Um, but it's really, I'm just so grateful for you sharing this with listeners because I think this is a transforming, it's just very transforming. Um, share a little bit more about the Baxter ups and downs again like I, it does kind of read like a red carpet okay when yeah. it's whiz they love him he's cfo he's ceo blah 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 so just talk a little bit about you know did you ever think you were going to leave was it too hard for you i mean there must have been some very dark dark moments yeah no, i know i i'm smiling uh molly and then seriously ask me anything they're, they're really the crazy part is there really weren't a lot of dark moments but, but for some of the reasons that we've already talked about. And so a couple, you always ask great things. So a couple of things that I'll react to. Number one, and, and this may sound like some kind of humility thing, but Molly, 
I never thought I'd even be a director level person. I certainly never thought I'd be a vice president. And if you told me I'd be the CEO of a $12 billion company, I'd say, you probably have a drug problem of some kind, Molly. You, you, you got some, no, I had no, no feeling of that. But the reason for that, it comes back, I think, uh, to a com some combination of my uncle, Father Francis, and, and going on these retreats, because what I kind of took a look at it was, all right, what do I know? In my own mind, what do I know? I know um, I'm here to be a good person. I know I'm here for a blink of an eye, a blink of an eye. Uh, and I like to be a positive impact. And I will always be ready uh, to take on something else if 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 people think I can do it. Because uh, I know I'll be able to do it. But you know what? I, I'm here for such a short time. I want to make a positive impact and I want to enjoy life. All right. So so what, what does that really mean? All right, so I'm a manager level person and I've got all these other people, they're competing to be a director. Okay, well, okay, I thought to myself, well, you know what? Uh, they're so focused on what happens next. Uh, do they ever live in the moment? And I'm thinking, I just want to enjoy this. You know, I'm newly married. We got one small big, and it's not, oh, oh, I'm going to be happy someday. I'm going to, well, first of all, you may not be alive by the time you think you're going to be happy. Okay, so, so I literally tried to make sure I'm going to enjoy what happens. And, and then, by the way, suddenly, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a, a vice president level, never, ever thought I'd get there. Uh, and uh, then at one point in time, the CEO of the company called me and said, oh, by the way, we're going to make you the CFO, the uh, chief financial officer. By the way, I never had my business card, chief financial officer, being a good finance guy, my business card read cash flow officer, because as you know, Mo, it's all about cash flow. Um, and he called and said, and I remember thinking, I think I was like, 37 years old. Most of the other people who could have been in the job were in their 50s. And uh, I said, oh, really? And he goes, well, yeah, Harry, uh, you, everybody wants to work for you. Um, and I realized, and they said, is this a surprise? Surprise. I never thought I'd be in this job. And he goes, well, are you capable of doing it? I said, oh, oh, I know I can do the job. Okay. I know I do it because why? I know all of the people that I would need to get it done. And I am very fortunate that, that, that people want to work for people want to work for me, which, by the way, Molly, one of the things that uh, one of my coaches told me, which may be good for your listeners as well, is, you know, Molly, a lot of people before they get in a job, they feel they need to know everything about that next job or they're qualified. And this fellow said to me, he said, Harry, I got great advice for you. Any job you're in the rest of your life, it doesn't matter your profession, any job, there's only two things you need to know. And I said, oh, Mr. Graham, what's that? He said, the first thing you have to know is what are you really, really good at? What are your God-given skill sets? What do you bring to the party? Analytical, what are you really good at? That's the first thing you have to know. He said, the only other thing you have to know is who knows what you don't know. I said, Mr. Graham, this is going to be perfect. I got about 40 people who know what I don't know. Uh, I keep them very close. So the, the craziest part of it, Molly, and again, I'm just being real open about this, I get asked by the younger students sometimes, they'll say, oh, well, you must have been this really bright guy because you were the CFO young and you were the only 40 when you were, became the CEO of this big company. And I said, you know what? I really was not that bright, but I will tell you, we all have to know what our skill sets are. I had three things going for me, Molly. And I thought it reflected on this a lot, three things. Number one, I took the opportunity to get to know everybody. When I say everybody, I can't walk into the Kellogg building today without saying hello to, at the front desk to Ken, Raquel, all the people at the front desk. 
And if I'm going to go up to my office and I'm going to grab a Diet Coke, I'll grab a Diet Coke for them. I'll even get them a little uh, uh, cookie or something. They're just nice people, right? Well, number one, I get to know everybody. I mean, I mean thousands of people, number one. Number two, by getting to know everybody, because you want to be nice and you want to set an example, it turns out you find out who the really good people are by getting to know everybody. And then number three, Molly, first level manager with two people reporting to me, CEO 55,000, every role I was in, I tried to create an environment, Molly, that everybody wanted to work for me. And I know this sounds crazy, but if you know who the good people are and everybody wants to work for you, you're going to do remarkably well. And in fact, somebody said, well, but, but how bright do you need to be? And again, I just try to be very open, Molly. When I first joined Baxter, I think there were 15 other MBAs that started at the same time I did from all top schools. And some of these people, Molly, realistically, they could do the work of three or four people. They were amazing. I could barely do the work of one person. I could. But guess what? I realized they can do the work of three people. I'm betting they can't do the work of 30 or 40 people. So if I create the environment that everybody wants to work for me, it's going to work out pretty well. You, may, you People used to tease me. You remember that uh, Tom Sawyer thing where he had to paint the fence and he talked about it so it's in such a good mood that he people paid him to pay the fence? They used to call me the Tom Sawyer of Baxter. That's, that was the... <laughs> I, I kind of did that pretty well. Yeah. So, but no, there was no, uh, and, and see what's interesting is since you have no, um, you have, it's, it's a crazy example. Well, I'll tell you one more piece of this. When then I get a call, what was it? Uh, after, I guess it was seven or eight years after being the CFO, the CEO called me and he said, uh, oh, you, you'll love this. He said, uh, hey, we're having a board meeting and, uh, uh, and ordinarily you start the board meeting uh, with your financial update, but I don't need that. I got to meet with the board. So he meets with the board and then it goes on and on and on and I'm not in the room. And he com comes, walks out and I said, how's things going? He goes, not well. Well, I was so protective of what was going on. I thought, why is it not going well? I mean, I think, well, Harry, I, I told him that, that I'm going to retire. I said, you're going to retire. I thought, why, why would you do that? Well, you know, I've just thought it's my time. I said, how are they reacting? Well, they're not reacting well at all because I told them, who I'm recommending to be the next CEO. And they're really upset. I said, oh, and I'm looking at all these guys that are like 10 years older than I am. And I'm thinking, I'll work for anybody. It doesn't really matter. It's okay, which one he goes, well, I'm recommending you and, and they're not happy. I said, oh my goodness. He said, oh, come on, walk in. He's kind of like a practical jokester. So I walk into the board meeting and everybody's standing up clapping. I thought, oh my God, oh, this is crazy. This is crazy. And the one board member, um, I think it was Fred Turner, who was the CEO of, uh, of McDonald's. He goes, you, you look a little shocked. I said, I, I, I am a little shocked. He goes, well, are you going to be able to get the job done? I said, Mr. Turner, I definitely can get the job done because I know all the right people I need to get together to do this, right? Um, and interestingly enough, where I got to give Julie a lot of credit, a lot of credit, every time I would get promoted, Molly, uh, I would call her. And this happened even on this role. And I said, so I called her about 20 minutes. I said, Julie, you're not going to believe you are not going to believe what just happened. I'm going to become the CEO of Baxter. And she just said, hey, I'm really proud of you, but I got the same question I always ask you. Are, are you still going to be Harry? I get a little emotional. Are you still going to be Harry or are you going to get caught up in this whole corporate mumbo jumbo? And I said, you know what? I don't think so. I don't think you're going to let me. I don't, I don't think you're going to let me even if I try to. And uh, so that was, uh, that, was, that was sort of the story. That was the story. Oh my God, um, how much money would I pay to be a fly on the wall as you're like, 
I can work for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I truly, I truly believe that. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, uh, you know, and and again, it's so funny, Molly. You 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 mentioned before. It what's so interesting is not having any uh, background where you get worried about things. Is I think to myself, I try to minimize shoulda, woulda, coulda. All right, if I think I should do it, all right, well then I'm going to do it. But I don't want. I never want to get back into this shoulda, woulda, coulda. Why? I'll try to do the right thing. I'll do the best I can do. Uh, and if we make a mistake, we're always going to make mistakes. Admit the mistake, and then then, then we'll move forward. Um, and it's uh, and it's funny because I I always tell the students you got to really think through what you want to do with each day you have because you don't know how many days you've got. You you, you just don't know. And I said, it happens pretty quickly. I said to the students a while ago, I said, you know, I was in this class, the classroom I'm teaching now. I said, I was in this classroom it as a student. And I said, it feels like it was, I don't know, was it three years, five years ago? No, it was 40 years ago. I said, I, I went from 28 to 68 like that, literally like that. And I said, because I run every day, I take care of myself. I, I mean, I don't feel, I, I got to tell you this, Molly, I don't feel any different now than when I was 28. I just don't. Uh, very, very lucky. But I am well aware of the fact I went. So and then I told Julie, I said, Julie, step on my fingers. If I was still alive, I'd be 108, 68 plus 40. She said, let's not talk about that. No, let's talk about it. It's simple math. It's 68 plus 40. Okay. So and I don't think I'm going to be around then. So what difference do you want to make while you're here? Avoid shoulda, woulda, coulda. Put it in perspective. Um, and, and every day, every day is a blessing. Um, I'll give you one more, Molly, because you're a pretty reflective person, I think it sounds like to me. Um, but here's another way of thinking about this. I think about this in my reflection, think to myself, all right, let's say you and I are having this discussion now. And while we're having this discussion, all of a sudden, um, my doctor calls me. I said, oh, Molly, hold on one second. I grab the phone. He says, Harry, um, I just looked at your tests. And, you know, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you the real deal. You got three days. You got three. Now, you can start running around the Mayo Clinic, but you're three days. How would you react to that? My sense is most people are going to go, whoa, whoa. I got that. Well, I kind of look at it as the one thing I do know, Molly, very seriously, I know I have three days left. Now, I don't know what three days it's going to be, but there are three days left. So why would you live your life? Why? How would you treat people differently if you know you've only got three days? And I think that has a big impact on, oh, you know what? I, I didn't treat Molly very well, you know, and sometime in the next couple of months, I should get together with it. Really? You may not be around. Um, and so it has a very centering way of uh, of thinking about things for me. It just cuts to the chase. It is very emotional because it really just gets to the essence of why we're all here. And it's so amazing. Um, okay, so we could go on and on. I want to segue because this tough talks from the top. I think, and we talked about this before we started. The so many people are, you know, I can't say that at work. Uh, they don't want to hear it. Uh, just a thousand excuses in my mind mm -hmm. that hold mm -hmm. us back from being true to ourselves, from sharing what other people really need to hear, so that they can be better, so that we can be better. So could you just take folks through what may, I know they probably were not tough for you, Harry, but you know, yeah. all the scenarios, whether it's managing up to the board yeah. with your peers, giving them input with people who are coming up the ranks, just share some of those conversations and how you navigated mm -hmm. them. Cause I think that's very educational for a lot of our listeners. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and a, and a couple of things, Molly, and there's, these are, we are getting some good examples here and let's get real, real specific. Um, 
I think there's an awful, well, let's talk about one of the biggest things and you can take this any way you like. One of the biggest things I think as, as a leader, you have a responsibility to develop the people that work for you to their full potential. And what does that mean? That means you need to provide them with feedback, with development. And as you well know, everybody can develop maybe to different levels. There is a different level of full potential, but it requires feedback. And what I find very often when I'll visit companies, they'll say, oh yeah, we do that, we do that, we do that feedback. You know, I got that form, it's in human resources. Once a year we sit down, we go through this. No, no, if you, if you work for me, Molly, I have a moral responsibility to help you become the best. And therefore, I'm going to provide you with open, honest, continuous feedback. And I think a lot of people, oh, well, you know, I, I, mm, I Molly may not want to hear that. Or Molly not be in the mood. Or, you know, I want Molly to like me. Okay. And what I always tease people all the time, Molly, if you focus on being liked, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be respected. But where I think the, the fantastic thing is, if I focus on being respected, I say, Molly, Molly, you may not want to hear this, but you're a nice person, but your communication skills aren't great. And 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 here's why it's an issue. Here's what I'm going to do to help you. I care about you. In fact, Molly, I'm going to treat you exactly the way I'd like to be treated. I actually think I could be respected. And if I'm respected, maybe I could be liked. See, I never walk away with being liked because most people around the world like to be liked, but that's the conclusion, okay? And where I think we run into a real problem is, and I love the way you talk about this tough talks, I am gonna make sure you know what I think is going well, what I don't think is going well, what the issues are, and what the expectations are. And I'll give you a little model because I try to be very practical. Even if you like your job, even if you like your career, okay? We all get frustrated. Okay. And I asked myself, Molly, one time, when do I get frustrated? And I realized it's usually when I make an assumption. And we all know that expression of what happens when you make an assumption. And so you can't eliminate them, but I minimize them. And because I realized when I'd say, hey, Molly, can you get this project done by five o'clock today? It's nine o'clock at night. You didn't do it. And I'm, I'm upset. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, why I made an assumption. Okay, I mean, I assumed when I said five o'clock, you understood five o'clock, right? Or you're in a meeting, you got six people, and uh, uh, if one person is doing all the talking, they suck out all the oxygen in the room, and the other five people get a chance. Okay, you're frustrated. Why? Because you made an assumption. So I'm going to give you a little four-step model, Molly. I use this every day. Four steps. Number one, we're going to set a clear expectation, and I can give you an example of this. Number two will communicate the expectation over and over and over again. Number three, we will hold one another accountable. And number four, there's consequences, okay? So if I'm in a meeting, the first meeting I'm gonna say, I got six of you, hey, well, tease about it, have a little fun. Hey, I'm sure this won't happen. Mom, I'm sure this won't happen. But if you end up doing all the talking and you don't give these five people a chance, that's not gonna be a good situation. And by the way, Mary, if you sit in a meeting like a bump on the log, and never say anything at all, that's gonna be a problem. And by the way, I'm sure this won't happen, Molly. I'm sure this won't happen. But if we agree that it needs to be done by five. Now, if you say to me, hey, Harry, I gotta pick up the kids, whatever, uh, is six okay? Oh, nothing. Once we agree on an expectation, I'm sure this won't happen. But if you don't do what we agreed you're going to do, there's gonna be a consequence to that, all right? Um, and I think being able in a respectful way 
That's my, one of my favorite words, in a respectful way. Molly, does this make sense? Do you understand why we've got to work on your communications? All right. Um, and there's so many people I run into. What drives me crazy when I get a new person working for me and I say, you know what? I'm kind of getting the sense we got to work on your team skills. Well, I've never heard that. I'm thinking, wow, you're 55 years old and you never heard that? That's fascinating. Okay. Um, so I, I never walk away with this feeling of, oh, can, can we, are we going to be tough? Because I don't even view it as being tough because we've agreed on how we're going to operate and we've agreed we're going to hold one another accountable and, 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 and there's going to be consequences. Um, so it, I find it makes it much, and I feel this feedback thing is almost the key to the key to, to everything. And by the way, if you're my boss or my boss's boss, what I'm going to do, it's a little harder when you're going up, obviously it's a little harder, but because, you know, we've all had bosses, Molly, where I tell you, you look at some of these people and you say to yourself, what happened to these people? I mean, Molly, did they have the wrong parents? I mean, something went really bonkers. Okay. Now, do I have the ability through my example, by demonstrating, I don't have a personal agenda here other than to be helpful. Can can you try to help and change these people? Um, and you, you know, so what? And where where does that all go? You try to do the right thing. You, you do the best you can do. It's so brilliant. And the for listeners, just what Harry has modeled is this notion of setting positive intent. I know this isn't going to happen, right? But being able to, in a light way, so here you have someone who's the boss being very light, but bringing up the stuff that needs to be talked about so that there's clarity. And this notion of like effective communication is about what others hear, not what you think you said. So much of us are like, well, I said that. I'm like, well, that's awesome that you said that. And did you check that anybody heard that remotely close to the way you wanted to be heard? Oh, I didn't do that. Right. So I just, is just, Genius, romp room, connect the dots. So I just want to thank you for that. Now, uh, I would love to hear because, yeah, whippersnapper, we're young, we're coming up the ranks. What were some of the constructive inputs that you did get from your bosses along the way? Yeah. Um, and for, mo for most of the time, the, my biggest issues, I think, were I really wanted to make sure that I didn't forget where I came from. I call it remember the cube. I mean, even when I was a CEO and you got this big office, I would literally walk by the cubicle I had been in 20 years before, that four foot by four foot thing where if you move your chair back, you hit your head in the middle file cabinet because it, it centered me. Now, like any good behavior, things can get, you know, probably taken to extreme. And the, and the story I'll give you where I got a lot of big feedback was I'm in the building one where the senior guys are. We had a lot of people. And if I had a meeting, I would often, instead of having to come to my office, I'd run all the way across the complex to the other end. And the head of human resource said, he came to my office one time and he calls the door and he goes, you know, Harry, um, I said, how are you doing, Frank? He goes, I didn't have a good lunch today. And I said, why is that? He goes, well, I was sitting in the cafeteria and I was starting to eat my sandwich and I got this instant um, uh, um, problem in my stomach. I said, why is that? He said, well, I saw somebody, they were running across the cafeteria their shirt was out, their tie was over their thing. And I thought, well, if that was some young guy, no, it was the CFO of a $12 billion company. I thought, are we going bankrupt? He goes, you're not a kid anymore. And I know you don't want to forget where you came from, but you've got to have a certain level of calmness, okay? Or or this place is probably going to blow up. And I said, well, Frank, no, Harry, 
you just have to calm down. See, you see how calm I am now, Molly. You wouldn't believe what I was like when I was when I was 30 years old. Um, and this concept, he goes, Harry, Harry, I know you want to relate to everybody, but you know what? Honest to God, they want they need to kind of be a little deferential to you. I never was really good at that, but I did get the concept of uh, you know, yes, you do have to be a little, a little, uh, a little careful. Like, and also for me, dealing with the board was kind of tough because, um, you know, some of these people, you know, they got big egos and so on. And uh, you know, the 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 prior administration, you know, they bring in these, you know, catered dinners or lunches for the board. And I said, hey, I got a great idea. Why don't Why don't all of you guys? Uh, why don't we just have lunch in the cafeteria and you can get to know everybody? Okay. And I used to read people pretty well. I did not read this very well at all. Okay. Because they said, okay. But as one board member said, okay means we heard what you said. It does not mean we think that's a good idea. Okay. So, you know, that, that created a little bit of a, of a disturbance. Because I, I, I like to think of it, we, all of us, you know, you don't forget where you came from um, and you keep things in perspective. But, you know, um, there is a hierarchy and, you know, you have to, you have to be a little more sensitive to that, which, you know, I was, I was never very good at. <laughs> I really wasn't. I really wasn't at all. Love the self-awareness and the self-awareness folks. It's, it's just a reflection point, getting to know ourselves or who we are and we're always changing. So it's ongoing. And I just want to encourage when you have great self-awareness, you have to track greater self-compassion. Otherwise you drive yourself crazy by just knocking on yourself for all the things that could have, should have, would have. So that's so awesome. Absolutely. Will you um, share with us, you know, because you're so invested in this, when you did move on, how did you decide to move on? And then what was that like for you when you finally kind of handed the keys over? Yeah. Okay. Well, a good, good example. And, and by the way, when I think about life lessons, one of the lessons I learned early on from self-reflection was, you know, who's Harry? What's my background? What really matters? And the great advice I got which I'll pass on, Molly. I'm sure you're well aware of this. Is never let your identity be your job, because if your identity is your job, oh my goodness, I, I could lose my job, and some crazy you could make do some really crazy things uh, rather than rather than than losing your job. And that happens even with with CEOs and so on. And uh, oh, the the first I guess six years, five six years, I was a CEO. Things went really great. Then the last year, bottom line was uh, we didn't have a good year. We missed our earnings. The stock went down, um, had discussions with the board, had a couple, you know, different views. And then finally it was like, well, geez, Harry, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it makes sense for you to resign. And I thought, whoa, um, okay. Yeah, no, if that's, I, I never thought I'd be in this job. And, uh, but it was always kind of funny because even though I always said, don't let your demo your job, I right away, of course, what do I do? I called Julie and I said, Julie, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be leaving Baxter. And she said, well, you know, you said it never be your job, and you said the average CEO is in three years, and you've been there for six years. And no, Julie, I, I, I'm leaving Baxter. And she goes, "Well, yeah, but as we discussed, whatever." I said, "Okay, we'll just have to talk about this a little bit." I don't, I don't think, I don't think emotionally, you know, this is. And uh, literally, um, it was a day or two later that um, Dean Jacobs, uh, the dean at the Kellogg School, called me and he said, "Hey, I saw it come over the tape uh, that uh, you're going to leave Baxter." He goes. Timing's perfect. I said, not really. I, I'm trying to get my head around the fact that I'm leaving Baxter. And he goes, well, all I can tell you is you've done that for 23 years and, and I need you to teach. And I said, you don't need like have a syllabus grade papers. That's not, I, I run companies. And he goes, I think you said you do whatever I told you to do. And uh, he thought I was going to do fi my finance, Molly, because of my finance background. And I said, 
you got all these brilliant PhDs. I got a, uh, I got an MBA. He goes, what do you want to do? I said, well, I said, if, if I'm going to teach, I said, I'd love to focus on leadership, value, and ethics, how you run a company, how you develop people. And he said, all right, you start in two weeks. And he hung up. And I thought, okay. Um, so I had to go to the library, Molly, to write a syllabus and uh, had to read all the articles that, I sh- Molly, I should have read them when I was in school, but I never got a chance to read them. I, I, I wasn't, you know, um, and I've been doing this now. But, but, but what people would say to me, they'd say, oh my goodness, what's the transition like from being a CEO and having 55,000 people and now being a professor? And I said, it took me, it literally took me a week to realize, okay, oh, okay, I'm not doing that, but all right, what can I do to make an impact? Um, I made this impact at, at Baxter. What impact can I make teaching, writing, you know, giving talks to support uh, the One Acre Fund in Africa? Um, and uh, and it's funny when some people will say, oh, boy, you know, uh, you know, when you left Baxter, I said, well, you know what? I happen to believe one of my beliefs is there's a reason for everything. And the way I look at it is if I didn't have a bad year at Baxter and I didn't leave Baxter, I never would have been teaching. I never would, have, and I never would have the chance to talk to you today. So there is a reason for everything, uh, and I'm not, I'm not, my ego's not big enough to assume I should know the reason. Uh, you know, I'll let somebody upstairs figure that out, and I'll do the best I can do. So, yeah, I love it. Please segue to One Acre Fund because I'd love for folks to learn about that and and how you made such a difference there. Well, that that is uh, that's one of the things I, I just really, really appreciate a lot is uh, I often talk in my classes, as you know, of we got all these issues in the world. We got global poverty, digital divide. Who's going to deal with all these issues? And uh, we talk about this. And I always refer to the people that are going to deal with this, this famous group of people, Molly, called those guys. OK, those men or women someplace. Um, and one of the fellows I'm most proud of uh, is a student by the name of Andrew Yoon, who took a trip over to Kenya and came back and he literally said, you know what? Uh, I can't get comfortable with the fact that there's eight, roughly 800 million people in the world that aren't eating. And the majority of them are farmers. He goes, how does a farmer start? That doesn't even make any sense. And he noticed the fact that a lot of the farming done in Africa was sort of the way we would have done it in New England in the 16th or 17th. He said, Harry, if we can get hybrid seeds, basic fertilizer, um, irrigation, we could teach them how to do this. So you look up and have your readers look up just oneacrefund.org because when Kenya got its uh, um, independence from the British Mali in 1963, if you were a Kenyan citizen, you got a one acre plot, but you couldn't grow enough product to keep the kids alive and the, the children were dying. So here's the deal. He, uh, he's been over there now, I guess it's for 14 years. He's hired 9,000 Africans they started in Kenya. They're in Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, Tanzania. They're starting in Ethiopia. They doubled or tripled the annual crop yield on 1.8 million farms that has so far saved the lives of 7 million children. And he's not coming back. I don't know, Melly, if you ever look at these TED Talks, but his name is Andrew Yoon, Y-O-U-N. If you look up the TED Talk on this, instead of thinking, wow, he said, Harry, we're not even 2% of the way through. You know, there, there's over 50 million farms in Africa. And he said, I, I think that's what we ought to do. So when my first book came out, From Values to Action, I called him in Nairobi and I said, I didn't think about this, but this book is called From Values to Action. You're the best living example of From Values to Action. So I said, when I'm not teaching uh, and I'm not running around on boards, I said, once a month, I will do leadership talks for companies, associations, 
universities, hospitals. And uh, I told him I'd do one a month. And uh, I, uh, I did one yesterday for, uh, for Deloitte uh, in Brazil on Zoom. It was my 1,353rd talk. Uh, I do two every single week, Molly. And I, I, thought, I thought that COVID would slow it down, but it actually, in a bizarre way, made it easier because instead of saying, I'm doing one in San Francisco on Monday, I got to get, no, I can, do, I can do a couple of them each day on, on Zoom. And instead of a, a speaker fee, I just tell them, buy the books because the books all go to the One Acre Fund, the proceeds. And then instead of having a speaker fee, people make donations to the One Acre Fund. And it's uh, it's been it's been really fantastic, and uh, it's uh, and and in fact, Dean Jacobs, Don Jacobs, who's a phenomenal guy, he built up the school before he passed away. He was one of my mentors. I would visit him every Friday, and uh, at, uh, at the place he was at, and he'd say, "How's it going?" I said, "Well, thank you for getting me to to not run another company and to come to Kellogg." I said, "I said it's like the trifecta." I said, "I love to teach value based leadership. It's great for Kellogg." And we raise a fortune for this one acre fund. He goes, Harry, it's not a not a trifecta, it's a fourfecta. He said, You you love doing it, which he knows is consistent because the dean said to me a couple of weeks ago, she said, Hey, you're 68 now, Harry. I mean, you've been the professor of it. What are your plans? And I said to the dean, you know what? I, I want to give you plenty of warning. I said, uh, I'm probably down on my last 20 years of teaching now. I, I'm probably down on my last 20. So you better get ready. So when, I, when I'm 88, I need I may need to slow down, Molly. I need I may need to slow down. So that's the that's the story so far, Molly. That's the, that's the story. You are my idol. Okay, to wrap, let's just have a couple of questions to wrap. What do yeah. you wish for your children and your grandchildren? Oh, well, Molly, the timing, I didn't know what your questions are going to be. The timing, if you ask me that, is fantastic because uh, my oldest daughter went to Kellogg, graduated two years ago, married a Kellogg guy, and she called me uh, just about a month ago and she said, Hey, I just want to let you know, October 15th is the day you may become a grandfather. And I said, wow, wow. So, uh, and they live out in Boston. And I thought, oh, well, we'll come out right away. Well, dad, you don't need to come out right away. I said, why is that? Well, we're going to move back to Chicago. I said, oh, um, well, should I get you an apartment? No, we're moving home. We're just going to move home before the baby. So Julie's all excited. Uh, we have a big family with the five children. My other daughter, Shannon, lives in London who's supposed to stay over there for two years. And she just called me two days ago. She said, dad, I'm coming home Labor Day. I said, for the weekend? Well, no. I'm, and I'm, I said, where? Back to the house. I said, dad, my sister's having a baby for God's sake. I can't stay in London. So we're going to have the whole, we're going to have the whole, the whole house filled. So, so what do I hope for them? I hope that they live a good life where they're respectful of people. They make a difference. They realize it, it's not about them. And in our own sort of way, they sort of prepare themselves for eternal life because this is just the blink of an eye, as you and I know. Keep it simple. I think it's just, I'm so smiley for you and Julie. I have to, Julie. <laughs> you know, here you shared, you're very good at sharing. You've done it a lot, but I have to ask, you know, in this past hour, what was it like for you to share your journey with us? I love sharing. First of all, just seeing your smiling face. Okay. It's too bad that you don't do this where you see people. That makes it, this wouldn't have been a lot different if I didn't see you. It's just wonderful to see you. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like when you believe in something strongly, finding ways to share it, uh, just as a, as an incredible opportunity. It's a gift that, that you've given me just, uh, just sharing with you. I just, uh, I just, I just enjoy doing it. It's just a lot of fun. Well, 
It's super fun. It's just so abundantly apparent, Harry. You know, you've inspired all those around you to reach for the stars and be all they can be. You know, thank you, thank you, thank you. As Marshall taught us greatly, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, I've started a new chapter. I'm going to, I'm a LinkedIn learning instructor now. And so I can only aspire to be a fraction of uh, the inspiration that you are, uh, Harry. So just, it's just so, it just warms my heart how much you really help us all be better and make the world better. And not that you need it, but if I can ever be a tiny bit helpful, I am here for you. So I'm just cheering well, for you in the biggest let, way. Let's, I'll tell you what, let's definitely keep in touch. Uh, if I can do anything for you, you let me know your phone call away. Uh, and I wish you and your listeners uh, the very best. And let's definitely make sure we uh, we stay in touch and keep smiling, Molly. Keep smiling. Yeah. You got a great smile. Keep yeah, smiling. I, I've got that. You, my friend, are really a part of the solution and your generosity helps us all be safe, seen and heard and our true and very best selves. You take good care, Harry. Bless you. You take good care, Molly. See you soon. Ciao, ciao. Oh my God, folks, it does not get any better. My thought from the week is from one of Harry's favorite leaders, Teddy Roosevelt. It is hard to fail, but it is worse never to have tried to succeed. And finally, my gratitude to all those folks behind the scenes, you rock stars who make this show possible, the amazing crew at Voice America, the diligent Eric Patton, who is a driving force for Say It Skillfully website and all our social media. And that is a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Harry's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.